Hi, everybody. This is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, we have a very special guest. He's somewhat of an all-star from the podcast circuit. His name is Josh Larson. He's the co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting, author of Movies Are Prayers, and editor-producer for Think Christian, a website and podcast exploring faith and pop culture. He's been writing and speaking about movies professionally since 1994. He's a veteran of the Sundance, Toronto, and Chicago International Film Festivals, and he has given talks on film at various colleges and conferences. Since 2017, he has led Ebert Interruptus, a tradition established by Roger Ebert. And uh, before I introduce him, I just want to make a small note that my brother Sam is the producer and booking manager of this podcast, and he is a huge, huge fan of Josh's and knows him personally. So it's a huge pleasure of mine to have you on today, Josh. How are you? Hey, doing fine. And yes, hello to Sam. I'm so glad that he connected us. I'm looking forward to this. Congrats on having one of the more unique podcasts that I've come across. Wow, thank you. That actually means a lot to me. And uh, we got into the podcast game pretty late, um, but we keep churning. And uh, I was able to listen to a few of like clips from your podcast over the last uh, couple of weeks as I was preparing for the interview and Sam ordered and read a bunch of your books. So he actually wrote a couple questions that I'm going to ask you towards the end of the podcast. Sounds good. And I don't know if he mentioned this to you, but it would be good for you to know that I was a film major. I have made films and I love film. So you're talking to another <laughs> Oppenheim brother. Excellent. Yeah. So, but before we get into films, uh, since you also are definitely into religion and that's more in line, with what we normally talk about on this podcast uh, we're going to ask more about that. And before we can even get there, we have to ask you our standard three questions, which is um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you consider yourself a member of? OK, so I'm 49 and that puts me in the am I I, I always get confused by this. I might be maybe the, the low end of Gen X. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't pay that much attention to generations because they, you know, they can tend to be tend to be reductive. But if this helps, I graduated high school in 1992, college in 96. So so those were my sort of formative years in terms of really digging into the arts and thinking more seriously in terms of my studies and that sort of thing. So so that's the generation I'm a part of. And I grew up outside of Chicago in a suburb southwest of the city. So probably about, you know, half hour drive southwest. So we spent a ton of time in Chicago itself, which is where I live now. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, I went to school in Pittsburgh and I have a lot of family and friends in Chicago, as does my wife. So I've been there a lot. Nice. But uh, too cold for me. That's my only <laughs> issue. It gets a bit chilly, but right now, man, it's the time of year to be here. Just beautiful. And it is, and I, I get hate mail for this, but I don't care. It is my favorite city in America. If I had to pick one of like the big five, it would definitely be Chicago. So I like it. Yeah. Uh, best sense of humor of any American city for those of you listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And I am a huge fan of Roger Ebert, actually. So it was interesting that you're doing the scene by scene. Um, I've never heard of that. Um, so actually, I said I was going to start with religion, but since I just mentioned that, let's just go ahead and get into that real quick. Um, how did you get into Ebert Interruptus? I know that he's from Chicago as well. Did you ever know him? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of years when I was working as a full-time film critic where uh, I would be in the same screening room for the press as he was. And as you can imagine, um, incredibly pleasant, jovial, though sharp-witted. You had to to be on your toes around him. Um, But just a wonderful guy, uh, which came through in his writing. And the Ebert Interruptus was a tradition he started, oh, decades ago at the Conference on World Affairs. 
And after his passing, they kept it going with different cr critics for a couple of years and then invited me, uh, boy, about uh, maybe five, six years ago now to try my hand at it, which was a huge honor because it's one of those things when Roger was doing it was a bucket list item for me to get out there and do that while he was leading it. Never had a chance to do it. And, um, yeah, have been able to actually lead it these last couple of years. And it is as fun as I imagined, um, just spending time with one movie, a couple of days with a group of people who come back and you form this small community around a film and dig into it more deeply than you ever would in another context. So, uh, looks like I'll be doing it again in April of 2024. We haven't nailed down the film yet, but I'm excited to be back there and keep that tradition going. That's so cool. I mean, yeah, the last time I did that with a group was like film school in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember doing it with the Hitchcock a lot, actually. Sure. And especially because of the remake of Psycho. And that was so, at the time, controversial to remake something scene by scene. Let's start out with uh, Christianity. Growing up, I grew up, I'm a little younger than you, I'm 42. Um, and growing up, I associated, and this is not like necessarily right or wrong, but I associated religion with like strictness towards films, and especially horror films. And you love horror films, and you've written about horror films. So my first question to you is kind of like, how do you ameliorate the difference between what like conventional religion says about film and what you feel about film? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization from my experience as well regarding film in general. Now, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home where my parents loved movies and took us to movies all the time. We were always aware of what the big blockbuster was going to be and we're excited about them. They were discerning for me as well. You know, I, I couldn't see whatever I wanted. And there were certain certainly things that were off limits. Uh, these were the early days of cable. We didn't have cable, which was part, partially a financial decision, but I also think a discerning one, you know. Um, horror films as a kid, yeah, definitely probably would have been on the list of those they you know, would rather I didn't see, but as kids do, you find your ways. And I write about that in the introduction to my new book on horror, Fear Not, uh, just about how I encountered my first horror films way too young at family gatherings, actually, when the kids would all go down into the basement to kill time while the adults were upstairs talking. You know, that's where I saw things like Psycho, as a matter of fact and The Shining when they would play on TV. So, so yeah, my personal experience is similar to what you're saying. Um, the larger culture, Christian subculture that I grew up within was skeptical of films in general, horror probably in particular. My immediate familial um, religious upbringing was a little more open to them. And I think that was crucial to me being where I am now. I, I never got the impression that I had to be afraid of movies. Um, you know, I had to be thoughtful about them. That was definitely encouraged, but they weren't something that were, that uh, I was taught was going to corrupt me. And, and I'm grateful that I had that sort of grounding for the art form. Very cool. That's a great answer. And that's really um, thought provoking for me. Yeah. And I grew up in like what I call the atheistic Bay area and my parents are not by any means atheist, nor was I, but it was just so weird to grow up there and think that that's like a normal attitude. And then as I moved elsewhere through the country and I've lived in like nine States, um, that's, it's the complete opposite. It's like a very peculiar part of America and that culture is not really omnipresent. And now today though, I'm seeing like, again, a revival of this like overt, like American religion attack and talk. And again, um, the purpose of this podcast for those of you at home, and just in case you don't know is to promote 
everyone having the right to their views and all that. So I'm not uh, asking these questions in an attempt to dethrone Christianity or denounce it. It's more that I'm curious. Sure, sure. Like, how do you see peace coming in the future in America specifically? Um, because because you're doing great work and and you're editing and producing for Think Christian and and like you're a thoughtful and considerate person and so are to my experience every Christian I've pretty much ever met. So I'm just curious, like how do you battle that PR and what what do you kind of wish people would think differently or how do you try to promote it? Yeah, I I don't think about it in those terms. You know, I I think about just carrying myself the way I am and letting that speak for itself rather than engaging in any sort of battle. And I'm glad you mentioned Think Christian, you know, faith and pop culture is what we do. And we're not really looking to win a battle either. We're instead trying to create a space for fellow believers who are also pop culture obsessives, because we may not be the loudest voice out there or the voice that the media gives the most attention to, but there are plenty of Christians like this out there who are, again, discerning but not afraid of popular culture and actually interested not only in just uh, participating in it and thinking about it, but thinking about it alongside their faith. You know, how might it echo some of the things that we believe? Um, you know, we come, Think Christian is comes from the Dutch Reformed tradition, which um, touts things like common grace, the belief that God's truth can be found in what people would describe as secular art works, even in the work of secular artists, you know? And so those are the sorts of things we're looking for is echoes of that truth in works of art, works of pop culture that wouldn't be identified even in some cases as spiritual. So we're kind of doing our own little thing, That's <laughs> how, cool. how I like to think about it. And certainly, you know, we get pushback from um, other believers who feel differently and take different postures to, to pop culture from time to time. But um, but yeah, it's it's not something, you know, that's at the forefront of our mind. And in terms of the larger American culture, I mean, certainly we could go down the rabbit hole of why nowadays you say the word Christian and something pretty awful will come to most people's minds. Again, I think that has to do with the loudest voices in our country that identify as Christian, the co-opted, the voices that have co-opted Christianity. Um, and are very loud, and the media outlets that have gravitated towards that loudness and thereby projected an image of American Christianity that is certainly there and present, um, but maybe, you know, I'd like to think not the definitive one. Yeah, and thank you. That was exactly what I want to hear. And I'm, I'm asking these probing questions of every guest because I am on the side of, like, peace and equanimity and, like, people getting along. And I also, the more I study all forms of religion, the more I see nothing but acceptance and tolerance in all of them and and, and, and an overall goal to do what you said, which is to bring, like as secular artists can do, God's faith into the world. And so actually I'd love to ask you a question about faith. Um, I know one of the definitions I've read of faith is believing in something that you'll never find proof of. So my first part of this question is, do you accept that definition or do you have a different one? And then kind of how do you relate that to yourself, not to other people? Yeah. Big question. <laughs> um, you know, when we think about faith from a Christian perspective, one one of the places um, you can go is to think about it as a faith being, you know, an assurance about what we do not see, I think. And this is in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, where 
This is written, uh, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so what I think is interesting about that, especially in the current American context and how Christianity is presented is it's presented as absolute assurance, right? And the final answer and anyone who disagrees um, is not worthwhile. But if you look at the Bible itself, it talks about faith as something and belief as something that is more about hope and more about having an assurance in something that we're just not going to be able to fully to fully prove. And it's interesting you bring this up because at Think Christian, uh, we just published a post about the nun too. Uh, bring this back to movies. And uh, J.R. Forresteros wrote a great piece about that and connected it to this idea of belief being assurance about what we do not see. This is a horror movie about a demonic nun. <laughs> and one of the recurring themes is this portrait, which I was unfamiliar with until J.R. wrote about this, but of St. Lucy and holding her eyes on a platter, offering these eyes of faith. And this portrait is used throughout the film. So it's just really interesting that that came up. But yeah, I think that's how I would answer at least my understanding of belief slash faith from a Christian perspective. I would point to that verse. Um, but I may have gone far afield from your second, the second part of your question. You'll have to remind me what that was. The second part was just how do you in your own mind reconcile with it? The, the main question of this podcast is what do you think happens when you die? So I'd love you to answer that question, but really also while talking about faith, like your faith in that. Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So how do I reconcile that, um, you know, assurance in what, yeah, we, what exactly. we can't see? I mean, maybe I'm weird, but I find great comfort in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, because what it tells me is um, it's not my job to prove this. Uh, it, it's not it's not my job to to prove Christianity. Um, and this is not to discount the field of apologetics. Uh, that's been crucial for me to wrap my mind in a way that gives me that hope and gives me that assurance um, around the tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, but I think that's different, you know, that's, that's discipling in a way. Um, I don't think of that as proving it. I think it's making the case. I think it's making the argument. Um, and with the hope that you will persuade people, but I like to think even, you know, someone like CS Lewis is doing this in the spirit of conversation, in the spirit of hope. Um, and, um, not so much in the spirit of, this is the answer and I'm going to beat you over the head with it and do worse if you don't agree with me. Um, so to move into your, you know, the big question, your, your podcast essential question, um, it gives me comfort as well that I don't have to have an answer for you today. Ah, nice. Uh, even though the Bible gives us hints, I think, and, um, you know, they're not hints that are definitive answers. Again, uh, if we look to the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of the body, um, and I actually spend a lot of time in, in the horror book, Fear Not, on this passage, because it's I do a whole chapter on body horror, which is essentially asking this, this essential question you are. like it, it explores our fear of our mortality and that death is coming for us, the decay of the body. And so I spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul talks about what happens after death 
as a great mystery. That's the actual word in some translations that's used, is a mystery. Now, he does offer metaphors and talks about the body being, you know, uh, here I'll, I'll actually quote it. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So that gives us a hint of what, again, Christians have hope for, but it's not an explicit picture, right? Yeah. It's it's not, um, you know, floating on clouds and sitting by a golden gate, which is maybe what the, the conventional idea is when people think of heaven or the Christian afterlife. Um, so that could terrify me. That could frustrate me. Um, I guess it's the mystery, though, going back to my earlier answer, I feel a weight is lifted then, is that there, there's a hope for something better. And this connects to overall Christian theology, right, is that this is a broken world that is in the process of being redeemed and will ultimately be restored mm-hmm. the way it was meant to be. That yeah. it ties to that whole grand story. We are part of that as well. And so then our bodies are part of that as well. So it's not, you know, death is not something I think about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think because of this, unless I'm doing so academically, like for the yeah. book, um, obviously when it touches me personally, as it has touched most people and I've had that experience, then yeah, it's terrifying. But also I find myself clinging to passages like this, um, as hopeful ones as to say, and yet there, you know, there is this hope for this picture, this metaphor offered in scripture. So I definitely lean on it in those cases, but I think because, um, it's not as definitive gives me the freedom to not worry about it quite as much. Yeah. I I really appreciate that. And I think it kind of segues into a different question I wanted to ask you, which is how much do you think cinema is helping people think about mortality versus helping distract people from mortality. Yeah. I mean, if you did a pie chart, I don't know, (laughs) probably, I mean, it's ultimately you say cinema, but, um, if you're talking more about the movies, I I use cinema as uh, yeah, just a huge rubric term. Like I just mean all all movies since like, uh, cabinet of Dr. Caligari on. Yeah. 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 I make the distinction just because, you know, if you, if you're talking about all movies, you know, they're mostly around to make money. So in that case, they don't want us to think about dying. (laughs) So so the pie chart definitely um, would weigh towards distraction. Uh (laughs) Absolutely. Which is fine, which is fair. We need that sometimes. Yeah. Um, But yeah, the, 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 there's a strain of film that is very much concerned about mortality. And these tend to be the more serious, thoughtful, often spiritual filmmakers like Ingmar Bergman say, um, or, or even those who are coming not so much from, um, um, from a spiritual background. And I think about the documentary, Dick Johnson is dead. Are you, are you familiar with this no, at all? No, I don't know that actually. Okay. So this, uh, is a film that came out a couple years ago now, and, uh, it's made by a documentarian, Kirsten Johnson, incredible documentarian. Um, and she basically traced her father Dick Johnson, starting when he was, you know, well in control of his faculties, but then as he began to deteriorate with dementia. And um, now this this sounds incredibly depressing, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but 
it's confronting mortality directly. And also she and her father find a way to do this, um, you know, in amusing ways. And they agree on this, as I said, well before he begins to deteriorate. So that part of what they do is, um, this sounds morbid, but they stage elaborate dramatizations of the ways he might die. And he's involved in this. So falling downstairs, say, or an air conditioning unit crashing on his head. And there's some dark humor at play there, but it's helping them process this together. And then we see it on screen. Then they also have in this documentary, these ostentatious fantasy visions of Dick's glam afterlife. And um, man, I'm going to, I'm glad you asked this. I'm going to bring this back to what we were just talking about with the resurrection of the body. Mm -hmm. Now, from what I understand, uh, Dick Johnson is um, Seventh-day Adventist. I don't believe Kirsten Johnson practices any sort of faith. I'm not sure about that. But what one of their visions of the afterlife is for him is him sitting in a chair and we see someone, my, my memory is fuzzy on the details, but we see someone washing his feet, right? A free biblical image, his bare feet. What's crucial about this is we've learned earlier in the documentary that um, Dick Johnson has misshapen toes. He even says at one point, he talks about how he's always been embarrassed hmm. about his toes his entire life. In this vision of the afterlife, what do we see? There's an insert shot of standing in for Dick Johnson's, a pair of feet being bathed that are whole, that are full. Hmm. And it, this is, as I just described to you, a, a deeply biblical vision of what we hear about in 1 Corinthians 15. This, I feel like, is getting close to what Paul was talking about, uh, again, in a in a documentary that is, maybe they were thinking about this passage, but certainly that's not explicit on the screen, but it's richly, it's just deeply soaked in, in the images. Yeah, wow, that's really thought-provoking, and I, I definitely, I like what you said about film is trying to distract us to, you know, make money and all that, because I do think about this a lot. I think about, like, pop culture, which I'm also a fan of and, a, you know, a huge fan. It's like basically my life is uh, it's both like dedicated to something I love and also dedicated to destroying uh, the other thing I love, which is philosophy, <laughs> um, like open <laughs> philosophy. And so actually to kind of like bring this into a contemporary conversation people are having right now, uh, this is the summer of Barbie and Oppenheimer. And I listened to your podcast and I didn't listen to the Barbie part because I didn't see it. So there was a uh, little point in that, but uh, I, without saying what my thoughts were on Oppenheimer, I'm curious, how much do you think of that movie is making people think about mortality, given the fact that it has a giant sequence about the Trinity test, and it's all about, like, the fate of mankind, and here come Death the Destroyer, all that, like, versus it's also just a popcorn-eating spectacle. Yeah, but is it? I mean, I've been so encouraged and fascinated by how much money that movie made, because I thought it was incredible, but it's definitely a downer. It's definitely a challenge. It's yeah. three hours long. Yeah. It's as you might expect from Christopher Nolan. It's it's made with such craft that um, you can't help but be fascinated by it. But is it blockbuster audience material? No. Um, and it's absolutely confronting us with not just our mortality, um, but I think you know how delicately we're holding our mortality in our hands, um, as a collective, not just as individuals, as a collective. 
um, which, you know, is is certainly still relevant in the realm of the nuclear question, but has been what's been added to that for this generation now for all of us, but particularly the young generation environmental catastrophe. Right. And so this is the sort of doom that's overhanging um, all of us now. And fascinating to me that a movie deeply concerned with questions like that was as big of a hit as it was. Yeah. I, wow. That was a great answer. And uh, kind of going back to like Christianity and faith, I've been reading a lot actually lately uh, about what you've been talking about because I've been reading The Course in Miracles. And so one of the things it talks about is what you spoke about, which is we're here to bring perfection to an imperfect uh, place. And I growing up, it, that never even occurred to me. So now that you mentioned like climate change as well as, you know, the atomic bomb and, and just the modern culture we live in, is it possible that we'll fail or is it is the whole point that there's no way to fail and it'll just eventually happen in your opinion, obviously? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I can give you the, the Christian answer on that and it's a, it's a slight variation of what you just said. I'm not sure of the exact phrase, but you said something about, um, bring about perfection. Um, so the, the Christian way of thinking about that would be work alongside God towards the full restoration. And that, again, leaves some wiggle room because uh, it's not our burden to bear to fix things, yet we're also not called to just sit back and say, let everything burn, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's not up to us anyway. Um, there is, we're given a cultural mandate when you read in Genesis, um, and this is something that has been interpreted many ways, even in the Christian tradition, but I like to think of it as caretaking. This is before the fall, before sin even entered the world. We were invited to do that. And so now we're still invited to do that. It looks differently because not only is the world broken and it's more difficult, but we're broken. And so we're going to mess it up. So all of our attempts um, are going to be flawed in some way. But we still, because we do believe in that final restoration, heed that call to work alongside God in whatever way we can, whatever gifts we've been given, whatever opportunities present themselves to us. Um, and again, it's kind of a running theme for me, but I find some freedom and relief in that. It's not up to us. Like, yes, we need to be concerned with these things. What, what personal choices regarding the environment should I make? What um, larger movements towards the environment can I become a part of? Um, what policies can I argue for? Those are all crucial things. But at the same time, it's not depending on all of these. It's not like I, I do that or the world burns, right? Um, the, Christian, the Christian vision for the grand narrative is that it does end in restoration eventually in God's time. And to that point, we work alongside God to help bring that about. You know, you have a, a very good talent for doing something that I think a lot of people aren't able to do when they talk to me about Christianity, which is you are able to explain the difference between responsibility and guilt. And uh, I find that fascinating. And I don't know if that translates to you over the phone, but it, it's really a good way to go through life, which is like, don't beat yourself up and get stuck on the fact that you may or may not have sinned or you saw sin and didn't, you know, you were apathetic about it or something. But at the same time, don't indulge in that and don't go there every time try to bounce back and try to be a good person and, and help others so i really appreciate your attitude that's it's it's very very refreshing and i think 
uh, I asked you how you deal with the larger culture conversations and you said, I don't, I just, you know, you're who you are and you do what you do. But in this conversation, you're doing exactly what I was hoping you would <laughs> say, which is that you are an ambassador of goodness and, and doing the right things. I like that distinction you're making uh, between responsibility and guilt. I think that's an important one that gets, that can get muddied for some people. Yeah. And I think that's um, growing up that was something I didn't understand as I observed uh, more Catholic people than Christian people. But uh, the guilt thing was always confusing to me because I was like, what kind of God would make you feel bad all the time? <laughs> and, and so, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I don't think that's true. And I, and I think that, um, you know, you, and you're very good at quoting sections, which I appreciate. Um, I, I'm, my brother's going to murder me if I don't get to a couple of his film questions, at least. Um, <laughs> you actually accidentally answered one of them, which is, can you talk about a film that deals with mortality? So that was good. Um, but I, I love this question, even though it's just really nice and simple. Um, what's your favorite film or cinematic sequence about the end of life? <sighs> so favorite is tough. I'd have to give that a lot more thought. Yeah. But, you know, um, it's one I had to come around to, even though I absolutely loved the film as a whole, when I first saw it, um, but this was Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, oh, cool. which in some ways traces that grand narrative that I've been talking about within the confines of a young family. Um, I believe it's set in the 1950s in suburban Texas, a family of three boys. Brad Pitt is the father. Jessica Chastain is the, the mother, and they have three young boys. And it traces within their family this whole creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative. And the way the tree of life eventually ends is in this unusual vision of everyone this one character has met in his life um, reuniting on a beach. And as Terrence Malick characters tend to do, frolicking in the shallows. <laughs> and and I'm going to make it sound so cheesy and hokey. Um, but I do, you know, when I first saw The Tree of Life, I was wowed by what I think most people remember is the creation sequence, as it's come to be called, where Malick just jumps away from this family for 10, 15 minutes and has all of this nature imagery from the Big Bang bringing us, you know, to the to the dawn of man and, and women, woman. And... Um, you know, that's what wowed me. And I, and, and I thought now what's going on with this, you know, this ending where, you know, all these, all these people are on the beach and it should have been more obvious to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it took more thinking about it and revisiting it. And I think that's, it's not too far from the pearly gates, you know, where you meet your, you know, say your mom who has passed at the pearly gates. Um, maybe Malik is just suggesting you meet her on the beach. Um, and again, that may sound trite, but there's something about the filmmaking, his style, this, this omniscient camera, he can manage to, um, to employ his use of music, um, the lyricism that makes, it offers another metaphor, uh, for what Paul is talking about in first Corinthians 15. You know, we have, we have Dick Johnson's feet being restored and we have, uh, Malik's speech where everyone is reunited and that's one that sticks with me though you know what put dick johnson's feet up there too i like that <laughs> yeah and that was why i said like you kind of answered uh, the other question that he had and then um oh gosh we're gonna run out of, of time so i'm gonna try to uh ham two quick questions in with you and then i'm gonna make sure you get your chance to just kind of give your um overall philosophy to end the show I i've been dealing a lot uh i love old films i love them and i love like the 40s and 50s and the 60s is probably my favorite era of film and uh 
I have found, unfortunately, that most people, even my own age, but especially younger than me, just think anything made before, like, I don't know, 2005 is, like, horribly slow, painful to watch, doesn't make sense, blah, 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 blah. So I'm just curious, can you think of a film that came out prior to the year 2000 that Gen Z and younger people who complain a lot might watch and actually go, oh, wow, people have been making good films before, like, the modern era, that, or the they call the modern era? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a Hitchcock. You mentioned Hitchcock. It's Rear Window. Oh, cool. um, it's 1954. And I often cite it as, you know, I get the question, as you can imagine, quite often, what's your favorite film ever made? You have to have an answer. So I just say Rear Window. <laughs> and, and that's because, you know, you've got James Stewart and, um, you know, he's he's stuck. Well, you have James Stewart and Grace Kelly, I should say. So I, I don't need to say much more. Um, just noting that it's those two and their star, their star charisma will resonate for someone who was born yesterday. So that's that's one thing. Um, but the other is Stewart plays this photographer who has, you know, a broken leg. So he's stuck in his apartment. And all he can do, he lives on a courtyard, is look out his back window and spy on his neighbors. And while doing that, he thinks he suspects that one neighbor may have murdered his wife. <laughs> and so this is not a movie that is, you know, pretentious in any way. Yet the craft is so incredible um, that it is a wonderful piece of art on that level, but also intellectually, because it's about voyeurism, it's one of the great movies about watching movies yeah. and asking us, what are we doing when we watch movies? What are we looking for? What do we want to see? What do we want to imagine? Um, and what might that be doing to us? <laughs> How is that <laughs> yeah. forming us? Um, so yeah, you could, you can think about that stuff or you could just watch, uh, James Stewart and Grace Kelly and, um, get, uh, you know, some thrills from the mystery, uh, and you'll have a great time with 1954's rear window. That is a great answer. And I will definitely be quoting you on that, not only with my friends, but even with my wife tonight, um, because she actually was asking specifically about that movie once. So thank you. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a watch. And then um, before I was listening to your podcast and before I knew anything about you, when my brother suggested that we have a film expert who's also uh, Christian on, I, I thought immediately of three films that changed my life and I love. And so I'm curious which of these three you like, love, hate, and just kind of what you think of them. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to be long or anything about it. Uh, the Exorcist, The Omen, and Rosemary's Baby. Ah. Uh... I thought we were going to get through this without The Exorcist coming up. Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> no, I have, a, I have a very complicated relationship with The Exorcist. I, I've, you know, it took me a couple watches to get to a point where I was, you know, really appreciative of what it's doing on a craft level because I think it's incredibly well made. Um, but I think, you know, William Friedkin, we should note, the director uh, just passed away recently. Mm, yeah. For me, I always sense, even on my most recent revisit, a gulf between um, the religious questions the movie does explore and I think, you know, is interested in, but also just how it wants to be a shock piece. And that that gulf I just can't quite get over with my viewings and it still strikes me as a religious exploitation piece on some level. Now I haven't read, you know, the Blatty novel from which it's, which it's adapted. My instinct is that there's just a different sensibility there from what there is in much of the film. And there's a tension there in there. I can't reconcile again. I've come around on it in terms of recognizing, you know, its influence and its craft 
and you know that the genuine curiosity in many of the scenes about that religious element, but then there are other moments where it just seems like um, it's losing that thread a little bit. That's cool. And actually, I'll I'll add one last question because I wanted to ask you earlier, and I think this is a great time to ask you: What is the biggest spiritual epiphany you've ever had in your life? <sighs> I mean, if you, I think if you keep it in film terms, um, it probably was the Tree of Life, and that that creation sequence. Um, I remember seeing that you, you asked about Roger Ebert and that was still in the screening room, um, there. So a small screening room, not that many people had no idea that was coming in the film in again, which is what is what is normally just this intimate memory piece about growing up in a, in a home in Texas and just getting hit with that. And, you know, the book of Genesis, which I've read, heard, read countless times in my life, um, that was, that was when it came alive for me is, uh, those few minutes in the tree of life. Yeah. So, uh, I always let my guests have the floor at the end. All right. Well, thanks for this conversation. I mean, I've been doing a number of podcasts while promoting, uh, the book fear not. And, um, this is the, the most unique discussion I've had yet. So thank you for that. Wow, thank uh, you. if, if people are interested in, in learning more, uh, yeah, fear not a Christian appreciation of horror movies is the title. It's available now. Think Christian, we publish blog posts, but we also have a podcast as well. So if you're more of a podcast person, look for the Think Christian podcast on faith and pop culture. And then, yeah, Sam, who I understand uh, really runs the show now. I'm (laughs) glad I discovered that. Uh, Sam's uh, been a fan of the Film Spotting podcast, which I've been doing over a decade now. That's more uh, mainstream film talk, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts as well. Awesome. Thank you again, Josh. This has been such a wonderful interview. It has been a pleasure to interview you and to hear you speak your incredible mind. And uh, I just love film. And every time I start to stray from it, I have like a great conversation like this. And then I want to go back and just spend (laughs) my entire time just gobbling up all these movies. So I'm definitely going to go back and revisit some of the ones we talked about. And for everyone listening at home, please rate us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe for free at MikeyUp.com to my weekly letter, which will fill you up with some positive philosophy. Thank you again to Josh Larson and thank you to everyone listening at home. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you.